Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's our privilege to welcome you always and be part of this uh, discussion. We'll invite you to grab a Bible if you are able, or just uh, listen and uh, sink in what we are going to discuss today. It's a beautiful topic because we are going to talk about the promised son. I would like to welcome our panel for today. Good to have you back with us, uh, Brenton. Thank you, Nick. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, and uh, the weather is good down in Mount Gambia today. That's great. And uh, Joe, thank you for joining. Uh, thank you. It's always good to be here, and today's another special day. Len, thank you for being part of this also. Thanks for the welcome, Nick, and hello, listeners. And Helen, good to have you with us. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate the opportunity of sharing. Ken, also it's good to be with us today. Thank you, Nick. Always a privilege to be here. And Lija, thank you for joining also. Always feeling very blessed. Will, it's good to have you with us because uh, you are the one who prepared this Bible study and facilitating today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nick. And it's uh, such a privilege to work with this team. As we've been going through the months, you learn to know people better and better. And I know that they uh, love the Lord. And uh, their, their Bible knowledge of each one is, uh, is humbling to me. We thank you for participating. Yes, we are approaching uh, again under this uh, topic, the message of Hebrews. And today we are going to talk about uh, the promised son. The book of Hebrew, a very a beautiful uh, book. But at the same time, maybe not as easy as others. But Will, we are uh, going to hand it over to you right now. Please take us through. Thank you, Nick. The book of Genesis introduces us to a creator in its uh, very first verses. Several times with the account of the creation of the earth and the cosmos, we hear the affirmation, God saw that it was good, very good. So our first parents, Adam and Eve, were given this beautiful earth as their home, as well as dominion over everything in it, ushering in what promised to be a perfectly happy existence. But we all know a mysterious defection or rebellion by Lucifer, who incidentally served right there in the throne room of God, introduced conflict and separation from our Heavenly Father, and it brought excruciating sadness and ruin into the history of this world. Do you know, in love, the Almighty devised a plan to redeem man from inevitable sin and death. Grace... Our blessed grace became the way of salvation for mankind. And I believe it is a theme that will forever awaken the deepest gratitude of the redeemed race. You know, before we launch into talking about God's uh, role in the plan of redemption, I think we should pray. Uh, Ken, would you pray for us, please? Certainly. Heavenly Father, as we join together again to share your words we pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit will guide us in all that we say here today. Give us wisdom, Lord, to open and explain the words we are sharing. Help us, Lord, to get across the love and patience you have towards all people and the invitation Jesus has given to become a part 
of your soon coming kingdom. Lord, we ask you open the eyes and hearts of the people listening that may not know you to search out your words of life in the Bible and to come to Jesus to find peace, comfort and hope in this dying world. Amen. 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 Thank you for that meaningful prayer, uh, Ken. You know, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God, God promised them a seed or a son who would deliver them from the enemy. And this seed would recover the inheritance that had been lost and fulfill the purpose for which they had been created. The son would both represent and redeem them by taking their place in facing the wrath of transgression and ultimately destroying the serpent. What was this promise that uh, brought hope to the couple after their fall in Eden panel? Well, this takes us right back, right back to the very beginning in Genesis at the beginning of the earth. And as we know, Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at that time, little did she know the far-reaching effects of her choice. And we know this simply because we stand at the other end of the continuum of that time. And there they were. They were both standing there naked before God, afraid. And obviously they must have been expecting instant punishment because the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. But instead God gives them hope. God declares a prophecy and tells us Satan's fate. So in the texts of um, Genesis chapter 3, he speaks, he curses the serpent. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now here God is telling us and telling Satan, actually, he's addressing Satan. And by virtue of reading this and hearing this, we also understand what is meant. And he's telling Satan how it will end. Now, the seed is singular, of course, when it refers to the seed of the woman. It's not all her progeny. It's specific to one seed with a capital S, and that is Jesus. Now, Jesus would come and finish Satan off, if you like, in plain language. Um, it says that Satan would have his head crushed, and we know this happened at the cross. What God said to the fallen pair was only partially understood because when Cain was born, we know that Eve named him Cain, or meaning the gotten one. And this was clearly in the, in the mind of the mother. You know, this must be the child of the promise. And, of course, little did she know that this was 4,000 years away and that the promised seed would arrive. And little did she know about the untold agony of the human race that would be experienced in the interim. And the story does not even end there. So, in a nutshell, this was the first gospel preached, and it came from the very lips of God, the creator. is a promise, a prophecy that although they were in a mess and God only knew the size of it at that stage, God had made a provision. God himself provided the lamb, the sacrifice. Now, Abraham was given that promise, and it says, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, this was much later quoted in Paul by Paul in Galatians, where he asserts that Jesus was that seed. In Galatians 3.16, 
will. It says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And so this gives us a tremendous hope, doesn't it, that Jesus was the promised seed. And, of course, from this end of our perspective, he had come and everything happened at the cross. Satan's head was crushed. Now, of course, we know that a crush to the head is far more serious than a bruise to the heel. And so at that stage, when Jesus died on the cross, Satan, Satan's reign was curtailed in many ways. And, of course, his head was crushed. And so he will no longer have dominion over God's people. I think it's it's interesting what um, what you just shared with us, Joe, because I'm looking at the same thing and I'm thinking God did the same with David. He promised David that his descendants would be installed by God as his own son and would be established as a righteous ruler over all the kings of the earth. I think it's interesting in what you read out too that when it, Jesus was coming, he wasn't just coming for one person. He was coming for all. So his blessing, his coming, was to refer to all people. The most important title of Jesus in Hebrews is is that he is not, not that he's a priest, a ruler, but that he is the son, the son of God. And 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14 says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men. Let me just explain here that primarily the reference here is to Solomon, it's uh, who was David's successor and the builder of the temple. But David was also shown that the Messiah, Jesus, was to come in his lineage and that was actually fulfilled and God kept his word albeit many 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 years later when the time came the psalm 89 27 to 29 tells me also I will make him my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth my mercy will keep him forever and my covenant shall stand firm with him but I'd also like to add if I may just a couple of verses um, from Psalms 89 when I was reading through that whole psalm I I just wanted to share with you Psalms 89 35 to 37 if I may it says I have sworn an oath to David and in him my holiness I cannot lie his death his dynasty will go on forever his kingdom will endure as the sun it will be an eternal as the moon my faithful witness in the sky so we can see here that in talking about christ it would be never ending just to finish off what neither adam and eve abraham or david probably never imagined however was that their redeemer's son would be god himself yes as uh, helen you pointed out and uh, also uh, joe the promise of a seed now uh, even uh, adam and eve their firstborn, you know, the, the attention was straight away to the child, thinking that that's the promised one. That was the same with Abraham and others. It's interesting that, um, as Joe pointed out, you know, uh, mentioning that 
a seed will be given to you, not seeds, even though each one of these uh, people, they have many children. And it's, it's very interesting that when it was promised to Abraham and through Isaac, you know, the, they thought that, that this is it, you know, uh, the promise is uh, fulfilled. Even though from him came two different nations from, from Isaac, uh, like Esau, you know, and uh, Jacob. And then we know the story, you know, the 12 tribes and so on and so forth. What is really interesting for me today is that as we have, you know, at least three major religions in this world, you know, the Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, monotheistic religions, so different from each other. And sometimes even in Christendom, we have so many differences among ourselves just because of understanding uh, in our own way rather than to allow the Bible to explain what that means, like in this case, always from Adam and Eve through us today, the promise was through Jesus Christ, not to any other seed. The seed was Jesus Christ, even though God uses, as I mentioned in, in uh, Isaac's case, you know, it was a, um, a promise also said, not from Esau, but from Jacob, and we're not going to go into that story today. I, I believe we need to look at the Bible as a whole, particularly when we want to understand uh, what's the promise of God and where I fit in the picture. Well, there's some interesting points that Helen has brought out, particularly in Second Samuel seven twelve to fourteen. She quite rightly pointed out that it's referring to Solomon in the initial case, but ultimately to the Messiah. Another name for Messiah is anointed one. What's particularly interesting I find in studying this subject is that when Christ came, they did not recognize him as the son of David. If you have a look at the references in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, most of the references or statements made by people to Christ that you are the son of David were not made by Jews. They were made by Gentiles, they were made by the Syrophoenician woman and by other people. I think it's rather tragic because in reading this statement in Second Samuel and Christ getting up in the synagogue in uh, Nazareth and telling them what his role was, they had misapplied the statements regarding his glory to his first coming. And we're going to look at his glory a bit further on, but all the Jews were looking for was someone who would take the throne of David in Jerusalem, expel the Romans and, and give them the preeminence that they so much desired. It seems as though the Old Testament prophecies by the time that Christ appeared, in other words, the seed, the son, by the time he appeared, they'd been so misapplied that when Christ asked his disciples in Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? Some said Jeremiah, some said Elijah, some said one of the prophets of old. In other words, the comments that were coming from those listening to Christ were not recognizing the fact that he was indeed the son of David. I think it's tragic that you can read the prophecies and you can misinterpret them. And by continuing to misinterpret them, you will totally miss the point. You will totally miss the person that God sent to reveal himself to the world. Yes, thank you, uh, Prenton. 
I love what Helen said that uh, hope came to Adam and Eve and Abraham and David, and uh, they somehow thought that their son would feature in this role. But I think uh, they didn't realize that uh, it would be the Redeemer. The Redeemer's son would be God himself, that uh, the incarnate Jesus. And now we find, according to this promise, this prophecy, Jesus himself, born in human flesh, entering the salvation history of this earth, I think it's probably very, uh, it was very significant what Helen said that neither Adam or Eve, Abraham or David ever imagined that the Redeemer, the Redeemer would be the Son of God himself. And I would add that perhaps even Satan, Satan had no idea that God himself would sacrifice himself for fallen humanity. Now, he might have imagined that it would be an angel perhaps or who knows, perhaps some very, very righteous individual in the future, but I don't think anyone could have imagined. This is gobsmacking kind of sacrifice and condescension on God's part. Yes, it's true, Joe. And you know that promise in uh, Genesis chapter 3 that Jesus would enter human history uh, is an amazing, amazing prophecy. And we find now that Jesus... He's born into human flesh, and he enters the salvation history of this earth. But I'd like us to look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And um, we'll deal with this in in certain sections, but uh, what is the central idea of Hebrews 1 and 2, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 then? Well, so far we've been discussing the Old Testament prophecies about the son to come. And when we get to Hebrews, here we are introduced to the son. And the first part of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says this, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Well, if you read through the Old Testament, you will read of times when God spoke to the prophets in a dream or maybe even a vision or sometimes even an audible voice. And sometimes it was by writing, like when God actually wrote with his own finger the Ten Commandments and when he wrote on the wall, Uh, in the palace in the time of Daniel. So God revealed himself in various ways in the past. And then there was about a 400-year break from the last prophet, who I think was Malachi, until the coming of Jesus. And the verse says, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. All right, well, I'll, I'll just talk about that a little bit later. But then the text says, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Now, if you read this, you might think, well, did he have nothing before that he should become the heir? And as we go on in this text, and I'm missing the uh, part that covers this, Jesus was the creator. So how come he needed to be the heir of all things? Let me read you this statement. When Jesus came to earth, he laid aside his royal robe and kingly crown. 
He chose to give back the scepter into his father's hands and to step down from the throne of the universe. At his ascension, he resumed the position that he had with the father prior to the incarnation. So in other words, when he was appointed and made the heir of all things, he was reinstated, if you like, or uh, took up the position that he held before becoming man. The uh, Bible puts it in Hebrews 1 and 2, says God has spoken in these last days by his son. We have to ask the question, well, was that better than what the prophets and the Old Testament uh, people who God spoke to had? Well, I think it definitely was. When Jesus came to this earth, he revealed the nature of God in no uncertain way. He also opened up the Old Testament scriptures. You may remember, as is recorded in Luke chapter 24, after the crucifixion and when Jesus resurrected, uh, all the disciples were very, very downhearted. They their world collapsed around them when Jesus was crucified and two of these disciples were walking back home to Emmaus from Jerusalem and they were very, very sad and this stranger joined them. They didn't recognise it but it was Jesus and he asked them, what are, you, what are you all upset about? And they asked him, well, don't you know what's happened? Referring to the Jesus crucifixion. And then he gave them a Bible study. In verse 27 of Luke 24, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. But he didn't stop there. Later on, when all the disciples came together, which is in Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was what was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So God revealed himself in the Old Testament times in bits and pieces, if I could say it that way. But when Jesus came, he revealed, revealed God in a much fuller form because he was God. Jesus came to represent God. He came to be our saviour and he came to be our substitute. The book of Hebrews is all about Jesus and I think we can profit very much by these studies. And that was a very uh, good summary learned from um, from this passage. What I want to just draw the attention again on uh, this um, portion of the Bible in Hebrew chapter 1, and particularly in verse 1, when he says that uh, long ago God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. It's interesting, spoke, because God revealed himself in various ways. We know that God, God revealed himself through the nature, for example. God revealed himself to the written word. God revealed himself to the prophets. 
God revealed himself to the Son, to the to Jesus Christ. And one more thing I'd like to add, the fifth one, which I believe is very important for us today, that God revealed himself through relationships, you know, to what we can connect with each other. But I want to mention that here is not talking about how God revealed himself. Here is talking about how God speaks to us. And before Jesus, there were the prophets who were the portavoice of God, talking about the plan of God, which refers also to the coming seed, the coming Messiah. I believe after Jesus, whatever we say today, each one of us, it's actually Jesus speaking, if we allowed him to, to do that. We are not having a different gospel to preach, a part of the gospel which Jesus uh, spoke. And it's continuing to reveal to the whole world through his servants. And I believe relationship is very important now because we can be very easily today, even in Christendom, as I said a bit earlier, not to say other religions, but in Christendom, we have so many differences and so many different messages. We need to really focus on what Jesus said and what Jesus revealed to us and is revealing today. That is so true. Uh, I think we also need to remember that Paul here is writing to the Hebrews, primarily um, Jewish Christians. And so he is saying, you know, you guys revere the prophets. You would not dispute anything the prophets might have said. But here um, God is speaking through his own son, which is infinitely, it carries infinitely more gravitas than any of the human prophets before him. Here was God's word, if you like, unfiltered. You know, God spoke in the Garden of Eden. That was unfiltered. It was God speaking himself. And here God is speaking again through his son, and it's completely unfiltered. You are getting not someone's impression of what God said or thought he said or understood to have been said, but this is God's word unfiltered from the lips of God himself in human form. I think this is just amazing. And so here Paul is saying, hey, guys, you know, the prophets were great. You listened, you revered them. But here we have something far, far better, far superior. And I think he's building his case. And it's it's giving us such a clear picture of who Jesus was and is. Um, it's very, very important. I've never really thought about how important Hebrews is to the foundation of our faith. Until now, it's always been a bit of a mystery, you know, one of those heavy books that is for the uh, theologians to consider. But there's some very practical, practical, informative, life-changing principles in it. Yes, Joe, it's true. Uh, as you've said uh, so far, Jesus spoke for God. Uh, we, he's now speak. The the Hebrews understand that he is is now speaking more clearly. Uh, himself and uh, but what we need to remember is is that Jesus not only came to speak and to preach he immerses himself into man's need and lives out a righteous life to bring them hope again basically uh, will there's two things that come out of these verses that Lena's read um 
where it says in these last days has spoken to us by his son. I was reading a book recently called In Absolute Confidence by Bill Johnson, and he brings out the point here very clearly that this spoken by his son is the final word. I think Joe touched on that fairly well. There is no further revelation beyond Jesus Christ. Everything that happened prior to that um, leads to Jesus Christ, and yet immediately you say that, you think of a text in John 5 verse 40 where it says you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me, yet you will not come to me to have life. In other words, you can search the scriptures and still miss the point. I think the second point that I would like to make in regard to this, and Nick touched on it fairly well earlier on, is this. Every prophetic utterance by modern-day so-called prophets or the Holy Spirit spoke to me and gave me a message regarding X, Y, and Z, unless these things lead us to understand Jesus Christ better, I think this is a test by which we can determine whether they're genuine messages or not. And I think that's pretty important. Um, the ultimate revelation, as we have all said, of God was Christ. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What more need be said? So Jesus, the Son of God, immerses himself into man's need to bring hope again. And I can only dimly imagine the shock or the awe that filled the hearts of all in heaven when the announcement was made that Jesus, yes, Jesus, would come become subject to death and save mankind. Joe, you have a thought on that. This quote comes from the story of redemption, and it sheds some light on that scenario in Eden. And it says the angels of God were commissioned to visit the fallen pair and inform them that although they could no longer retain possession of their holy estate, their Eden home, because of their transgression of the law of God, yet their case was not altogether hopeless. They were then informed that the Son of God, the one who had conversed with them in Eden, had been moved with pity as he viewed their hopeless condition and had volunteered to make to take upon himself the punishment due to them and die for them that man might yet live through faith in the atonement of Christ proposed to make for him. Through Christ, a door of hope was opened that man, notwithstanding his great sin, should not be under the absolute control of Satan. Faith in the merits of the Son of God would so elevate man that he could resist the devices of Satan. Probation would be granted him in which, through a life of repentance and faith in the atonement of the Son of God, he might be redeemed from his transgression of the Father's law. Mm. Yeah. I just think what it means, folks, that Jesus... Yes, God himself comes to the earth to enter into our conflict. What to you, panel, why do you think this truth should bring us so much hope? Well, I, I think firstly, I believe that really very few, few of us really grasp just what an amazing situation this was. I don't think we living here on earth can really grasp the amazing place that heaven is and we're God's throne is and how amazing that is. And here we have the son of the living God, the, the God of the entire universe that gives up that position to come down to save the likes of us who are all sinners. I think it just goes 
completely beyond my understanding. Yeah, I think that's why they call it the mystery of godliness, isn't it? In fact, I think this gives us hope because God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, and there is no one above him. And the fact that Jesus came and died on the cross as a human, yes, but he was God. I, I, I think it just blows all of our mind. And the fact that he did come as God, he didn't send an angel, he didn't um, say a human being to take our place, it was God and God only. And that to me is totally, absolutely mind-blowing, absolutely. Just uh, for, for a moment, in my own case, how important was and is to have a relationship with Jesus, to know Jesus. We all come from different backgrounds and we can have very strong influence in our life because of the upbringing, because of the background. We may come from a Christian background. We may come from a non-Christian background. But what's important when I connect with Jesus? Because all other things will fall off the table. That was in my case because I've been raised and I grew up in a very Christian home. But I rebelled because I didn't have that relationship myself personally with Jesus until he revealed himself to me. He spoke to me, to my heart, and I had to take decisions. Many people are living a so-called Christian life today, being influenced by the upbringing, by their, um, you know, culture, and all other things, I'll encourage each one to develop that personal relationship with Jesus. And he will show you where that you can be. It gives me hope. It gives me hope that I have been given, um, Jesus has given me an opt-out of the situation. Because of the fall, um, we have all been doomed. I have been doomed to a short life here and then oblivion. And because of Jesus, I and you have a chance to change, to choose basically our eternal consequences. Do we want to live and enjoy all that Adam and Eve had lost? Do I want to do that? Or do I just want to, you know, be as though I'd never existed? So we are stuck here and we don't have much say in being born, but and not many of us would have it any other way. But um, we do have a choice of what we do with our eternal destiny. And I think Jesus gives us so much hope that there is um, an opportunity for us to choose. Do we want to live or do, want, do we want oblivion? And God has given us the means to live our lives as best and as peacefully as possible because he knows what brings us pain. So, therefore, He has given us his word, the Bible, and he says, live according to this. Choose life. I mean, we studied Deuteronomy. Choose life. Avoid death. Choose life. Choose God. And so this is an opportunity for us. Otherwise, if it weren't for Jesus, we would have just had our short span of life here, and then it would be oblivion forever and ever. So I thank God for that. I'm asking myself many times if how much can we comprehend the fact that God gave in this plan of salvation, gave everything, him as a king, as a creator, 
he gave everything. He gave all his love for humanity, everything. Whatever he had more precious, his only son, he gave it to us to save us. And in our limit, I don't know if we can comprehend all his love, everything that he gave to us. That is so true, Richard. You know, to step down and take on the frailties of human flesh, including its struggles against the evil one, I think should be profoundly humbling to us all. And it's good for us to remind ourselves of the pre-incarnate splendor of the Son of God. Now, our focus is still on Hebrews 1, but uh, let's have a look at the scripture for a quick review of the sheer majesty of Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. Brenton, would you like to share with us something on that? Well, I'll just confine myself to the first part of verse 3 of uh, Hebrews 1. It says, Who being the brightness of the glory, his glory and the express image of his person. Now, I'm just going to talk about the, uh, the glory of God here. We find that when Christ came to the earth, we all know that Christ veiled his glory, as it were, uh, in human flesh. However, there, were, there was an example where he did reveal his glory. Matthew 17 talks about what we know as the transfiguration, where it says that his face became as bright as the sun and his clothes became brighter than um, any human being could wash them. In other words, what Christ had prayed for on the Mount of Transfiguration is that his disciples who were soon to see him crucified, that they would actually realise that the person they'd been following up until now was indeed the Son of God, that was indeed divine. And that's how it turned out to be, because Peter refers to this in Second Peter 1, where he says we were with him on the holy mountain. He's referring to the glory of God. But I think, well, there's a deeper aspect. It's not just the physical brightness of Christ's clothes or Christ's face that it's talking about when it's talking about the brightness. I believe it's also talking about Christ's character because it's Christ's character that is revealed in the glory. The physical glory reveals the perfection of his character. Now, that should give us hope because we can then realise that the person who died on the cross for us was both human but also divine. And if it weren't for the divine, we would still have no hope. So whenever I read about the brightness of Christ's glory, everyone immediately thinks physically about it, and that's true, but it's a deeper meaning than that. It's talking about the glory that comes from within, the character of God being revealed. Remember Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Indeed, Brenton, you know, when Moses asked to see the glory of God. Yes, God, it was character. Yes, he actually said, uh, he actually described to Moses what he was like. That's characteristics. And I think that is his glory. That's true. You know, we do get onto hallowed ground um, and into a subject too deep for us really to comprehend when we start contemplating the nature of the Son of God, in, especially in his pre-incarnate state. That is what we understand of him prior to his birth on in, in birth into human form in Bethlehem. But in Hebrews, the curtain is drawn aside a little in chapter one and verse three, 
And we approach the subject with extreme caution. So let's ex- let's ex- comment on the phrase, uh, the express image of God's son. Ken, do you want to tackle that one for us? Well, this is uh, quite amazing words here, as we read in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Express, of course, means in a hurry and quickly and speedily. An image, of course, is the same as and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, in the Old Testament, the glory of God refers to his visible presence among his people, Exodus 16 and verse 7. Scripture informs us that Jesus is the light who came to this world to reveal the glory of God, Hebrews 1 verse 3. Think, for instance, of how Jesus appeared in the transfiguration, as Brent mentioned a moment ago, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light, Matthew 17 verse 2. Just as the sun cannot be perceived except by the radiance of its light, God is known through Jesus. From our perspective, the two are one. Because God's glory is light itself, there is no difference. An actual being and character between God and Jesus, just as there is no difference between light and its radiance. Hebrews also says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father's substance. The point of the metaphor is that there is a perfect correspondence in being or essence between the Father and the Son. Note that the human beings carry God's image, but not his essence. Genesis 1 verse 26. The Son, however, shares the same essence with his Father. No wonder that Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14 verse 9. It's interesting. There's a hymn which I have sung often which goes like this, to God be the glory, and yet he has glory. And it's kind of like suggesting, well, we give that glory to God. Yes, we do, because he is worthy. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son. He deserves the glory because of what he has done. Yes, and the praise certainly then. Um, Our text goes on to say that Jesus upholds and sustains all things. Uh, What does this mean, Ledger? As we read in Hebrew chapter 1, verse 3, the last part is saying, um, the Son is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus being the creator, he was not just a helper, But it says that Jesus is the Lord who created the earth and the heavens. And also Paul applies this to him in Psalm 102, verse 25 to 27, says about the Lord, the Yahweh, as creator. And uh, in Hebrew chapter 2, verse 10 says that the universe was created by or through the Father. The Father created and also Jesus created. (laughs) We observe here that there is a perfect agreement between the Father and the Son in purpose and activity. And um, this is part of the mystery of the Trinity. Jesus created and God created, but there is only one creator God, which implies that Jesus is God. Jesus also sustains 
the universe. Sustenance in which way? Um, guidance, governance, and uh, because he is the maker, the creator, he governs everything by his word. And we observe that everything goes by the exact rules, by the clock, as we can see, day and night, seasons, follows after seasons. And also, he sustains every breath, every heartbeat, and every moment of our existence is found in him. So Jesus is the foundation of all created existence. Yes, well, if you ask Richard Dawkins about this, he would say, no, the universe goes by physical laws. However, I ask the question, who made those physical laws that the universe works by? I think it's uh, we need to give God the glory because he is the creator and it was he who made the worlds and the physical laws by which it operates. So true, Lynn. What I was going to add is that Jesus never attracted attention to himself. He was always uh, revealing the Father. Uh, and that's why it's important because the tendency and the temptation of human beings is to attract attention to themselves. I was interested in that text because he sustains, and especially what Lydia just said, he sustains us every breath and every heartbeat. Most or nearly all of us take that for granted. Whether we believe in God or not, we tend to take it for granted that we we don't have to tell our lungs to fill up or our blood to go around and our heart to keep beating. And, you know, every moment of our existence is through him. He sustains. And I look at the stars at night and I think, wow, the power of God, he, he sustains them. He knows all the stars by name. And, and the fact that they're not just falling out of the sky, they're, they're in a particular place, it just astounds me. So I think we need to be more aware on a daily basis of all that we do comes from him and him alone. That's true, and what an acknowledgement that would be, Helen, if we could think of that from day to day. You know, Hebrews therefore teaches us that if Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the earth, and he laid down his life to save sinners, while knowing mankind so intimately, he is perfectly equipped to become its judge too. And that's why Hebrews 1 verse 3, the end of the text says, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that judgment can now be given to him. Now, panel, here's a bit of a tough one for you. Hebrews 1 verse 5. Hebrews 1 verse 5 records the following words of the Father to Jesus. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What does it mean to, uh, for that Jesus was begotten? And uh, when did this happen? Does this not show that Jesus was somehow created by God sometime way in the past? As many people uh, now believe. Can you help me? Maybe I'll just kick off <laughs> um, and let others do all the talking. I guess what Paul is struggling here in these, in the first chapter, perhaps in the first few verses, is is trying to put Jesus's incarnation into human words, and this is, you know, to describe it for us. And this is where the difficulty is for us. So, 
Is he God or is he man? Did he pre-exist or was he begotten? Is he, you know, his heir of all things? Well, who died? Well, he died himself. Pretty mind-boggling stuff. I think a lot of the confusion that comes out of these texts is that, and Paul is trying to explain the incarnation, but human words cannot because we cannot even comprehend this. So uh, I'll leave it at that, and I'm sure the panel have a lot more to say. All right, help me, panel. What I would like to add here is that we know the work of the angels. Even before Jesus, many angels came to assist people like uh, Daniel and uh, others. The angels were at work, but when the time came for the promise, see, as we're talking today, Jesus was the one who came and it, it was through the Holy Spirit, you know, come, came in the human form and he was born in human flesh to represent the plan of salvation. Now, God could have called an angel to come and do that. That's why that was for God never said to an angel what he said to Jesus. You are my son. When God said that to Jesus, the baptism, yes? Now, God could have called an angel, as I said earlier. That's why he refers to Jesus that he's be- the only begotten son as he was coming in the human form. He was not referring as, uh, to Jesus as we already discussed as being even the creator of the heavens and earth. He was talking about the seed which and the Messiah, which was promised to come at the right time. Yes. The question, the question is, was Christ created being or not? Now, some people say he was, based on Colossians 1 verse 15, which said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, kills the idea of Jesus being a created being. He goes on to say, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Yes, I believe what Nick said is quite correct. In his uh, form as a human being, God also accepted him as his son. Uh, Prior to that, when Jesus was in heaven, I believe God the Father and God the Son, as we call him, were equals. I believe there is an answer to this um, will, and um, the answer is found by comparing Psalms chapter 2, not just verse 7, but the whole of um, Psalms chapter 2, with Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John are arraigned before the Sanhedrin, they go back and they pray this prayer. I'm starting at verse 23 or 24. So when they heard that, they raised their voices to God and with one accord said, Lord, you are the God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. They're acknowledging God's creatorship, who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why did the nations rage, etc., etc." I'm not going to read it all because of the brevity of time. However, I will comment further down, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand 
and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness that we may speak your word, etc., etc., etc. If you want to set a chronological time for when this statement, today you are my son and I have begotten you, takes place, I believe it's Christ's installation at the right hand of God following his ascension from heaven because the disciples are using Psalms chapter 2 to prove that exactly what took place in the conspiracy to get rid of Christ occurred in answer to the prophecy of Psalm chapter 2. They are now using this and saying, Lord, we understand what took place. We understand that the fulfillment of Psalms chapter 2 is what we are now praying because this is a prayer. This is not a Bible study. It's a prayer. Now, is this the truth about chronologically when Christ was um, given the title of you are my son today, I have begotten you? Yes, because the immediate next verse says the Holy Spirit was poured out on them and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, if their understanding of scripture had been faulty, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have been poured out on them in the first place. So their understanding of what this means chronologically and I believe prophetically is fulfilled here. So I believe that this statement that today you are my son and I have begotten you relates to the incarnation, specifically the birth of Christ, where the, the kings tried to destroy him, King Herod, and to his crucifixion. So the, the Bible is completely silent on anything on Christ's uh, being begotten, if you want to use that term, prior to this time. You cannot trace anything biblically back in any part of the Old Testament or the New Testament before this time to support a position that Christ was at some stage begotten. I believe it starts at this particular point in time because uh, we have um, Christ assuming a new role. He is now taking the role of high priest that was formerly held by all the priests. And, of course, the rest of the book of the Hebrews, as you know, Will, is all about uh, how Christ's priesthood is superior to that of the uh, Jews. That's a great explanation. Thank you, Brenton. Helen? Just quickly, I read a statement this week which summed it up fairly well, I felt, said he is eternal. Thus, the idea of Jesus as God's only begotten son is not dealing with the nature of Christ as deity, yes. but with his role or function, which um, Brenton was bringing out in the plan of salvation. Through the incarnation, Christ fulfilled all the covenant prophe prophecies. But the beginning of Jesus refers to the beginning of Jesus rule over the nations and not to the beginning of his existence. Because yes, Jesus yes. has always existed. There was never a time yes, when Jesus yes. did not exist. Because he is God. I certainly agree with that. You know, folks, however we look at it, the coming of Jesus to this earth as the Son of God fulfilled several functions at the same time. In the first place, the divine Son of God, Jesus, came to reveal the Father to us. And through his words and conduct, Jesus showed us what the Father is really like and why we could trust and obey him. You know, at the same time, Jesus also came as the promised son of David, promised son of Abraham, the promised son of Adam, and the seed through whom God had promised that he would defeat the enemy and rule the world. 
Thus Jesus came to take the place of Adam, the head of humanity, and fulfill the original purpose God had for the our first parents, Adam and Eve. Jesus came to be the righteous ruler God always wanted this world to have. Now, this begs the question, panel and listener, we have become part of a great inheritance through the Savior of mankind, Jesus Christ. We only pray that you will accept his offer of, of adoption into his family and to enter life eternal as the reward of his grace when he returns to the earth, which I believe is going to be soon. Brendan, would you close with prayer for us? Certainly will. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the study that we have had today. To think that the eternal God who had no beginning, no end, would come to this earth to become one of us and to die on the cross for our sins breaks our hearts. Lord, melt our hearts today, not only as a panel, but also as listeners. May we understand the, the depth, the absolute quality that God sent his son to us to become one of the human race. And he will have that characteristic throughout eternity. Lord, may we leave here today with grateful hearts. May we leave here, Lord, determining in our own hearts that we will be more like you. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. May we understand Jesus. May we be like the Greeks who said we would see Jesus. May we see Jesus not only today, but throughout our studies as we continue uh, each week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, panel. Uh, great discussion. Uh, the book of Hebrew reserves still a lot of um, important message. And we're looking forward uh, in the next uh, programs. We are inviting you to join us again when we are going to look at Jesus, our faithful brother. May God richly bless you and continue to walk in the footsteps of Jesus.